0: Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining the show again. Thank you so much. We have been doing this for right about a year. And um, the response has been wonderful. There's been so many downloads. uh, More importantly, so many people that it's helped so many people who listen every show, which I can't be more grateful for. And if you'll notice, I always start my shows with a thank you, because I truly mean it. I believe that leading with gratitude is one of the most important things you do you can do in life. So thank you all. Thank you all for rating, reviewing, subscribing, supporting the show, telling everyone about it, and most importantly, taking this empowering information and putting it into your life and implementing and changing everyone around you, including yourself. All right, today's show, going to be good, I promise you. Lots and lots of information about sound healing, because it is healing, and uh, music, because who doesn't love music, right? Uh, So uh, I want to talk about the medical benefits of it. And then the guests, really, really, really good guests, Um, they have one of the top trending books in the world right now, Um, and it's about diabetes. And you don't have to be diabetic to really love this episode, and the crazy part is is that so many of us have dysregulated blood sugar anyway, so that whole segment is going to be for everyone listening, and really good, important information about plant-based food. All right, without further ado, let's jump right into it. I've been looking forward to this episode for so long because um, music is very important to me. I listen to music from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. It's always on and that's the way I grew up. And many of you I know can relate to that because you feel that connection to it too. Um, And you may recall a few episodes ago, I did a show on binaural beats and the importance of binaural beats and what it does. We talked about how it helps anxiety for those getting surgery or about to get surgery. But I really want to go into what music therapy does and the different type of uh, conditions that it can be helpful for. So I'm excited to share that, for one. And I I mentioned that music, for me, is a language of life. I have a major affinity towards uh, music, and I know that many people feel the same, as I said. Um, And for me, I, I met people who are not really into music and less passionate about it, and that's okay because you can still... Uh, benefit from the healing effects of music whether or not you're super passionate or not Um, but yeah it's there's a there's a lot that we can talk about with it so the question is does music have healing effects is music healing you see like I in my own personal experience growing up I sort of knew this right like if I felt some sort of way anxious or depressed my own remedy intuitively was to listen to something that I like and um, I just did a podcast Ever Forward Radio this or last week and the conversation that we had was basically what music does and I believe that because we are energy right and music has frequency that frequency aligns with our energy and can change it right so if we're really in a low low vibration it can actually raise that vibration and that sort of was my theory behind it for a while Um, but yeah music is definitely definitely something powerful so if you're wondering if it has medical benefits yes 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 and let me go over them so what do we know about music in the context of healing. We know it engages a variety of different areas in the brain. These areas are involved in emotion, motivation, cognition, and motor function. Musical intervention has been used to increase socialization, cognitive function, emotional connection and neuromotor functioning, right? This has, been, this has been out for a while. Now they're really starting to implement this in many diseases and conditions and seeing improvement. I'm gonna go over them. So remember, the brain is not static. If you recall and you listen to the episode about BDNF, I talk about brain plasticity. The brain changes, right? The neurons respond to each other, they speak to each other, they wire and they fire together. So it stands to believe that if we have a continuous stimulus that is positively affecting a part of the brain, that the brain's going to respond. And music does that. The brain is influenced by music. And remember when I spoke about, I think it was last episode, when I spoke about rejection and rejection, physically over, or rejection overlapping the physical pain centers in the brain. Which is really interesting because now we know that there's an intimate tie between the mental and physical symptoms, not just rejection, but the mental and physical are tightly wound in the centers in the brain. So it stands to believe that, of course, when you stimulate those centers in the brain, they can help physical issues, and they do. Music therapy has been shown to be beneficial for autism, particularly because this population has a generally heightened interest in music and response to music. It's seen that these kids in these studies have been more responsive and their symptoms improved when listening to music. And there's different types of music. I'll go into the different types and how they benefit, but really let's just take music as a whole. Alzheimer's dementia and mental disorders. They see music, they seen that music has been found to reduce aggressive and agitated behavior, reduce symptoms of dementia, improve mood and improve cooperation in daily tasks, for example, like bathing, when when the um, patient is being bathed, the cooperation is better when they're subject to music. There's definitely more than a few studies on music and depression, but what we see, it can help responsiveness to medications, and a little bit more details I'm gonna go into later about the study on depression, but what we see is that it actually helps overall symptoms of depression. Sleep quality, not only adults, not only in children, but also infants. And that might not be a new one to you. Maybe maybe if you're a mom uh, for 20 years or a new mom, you may know that that music hack for your infant is really helpful, but um, that was new to me. And a really nice description is out there by Harvard Health. They put together um, some stuff about music theory. I'll actually link it onto this um, podcast so you can always check it out. But yeah, they have a really good description. But let me go over some more. Pre-surgical, surgery and post-surgery. We saw this not only with binaural beats in the pre-surgical anxiety, but music therapy helped ease anxiety and discomfort for procedures. And the control trials that they did for people having colonoscopies, cardiac angiography, knee surgery, Those who listened to music before their procedure had less anxiety and less need for sedatives overall. That's pretty fascinating. And people who listened to music in the operating room reported less discomfort during the procedure, and those who heard music in the recovery room had less use of opioid medication for pain. That's pretty incredible, too, as we know that opioids are in itself uh, a big issue in the medical community. If we can use less of it, that's always a plus. How about restoring lost speech for those who had, for example, a stroke? Well, music, music therapy can help those who are recovering from stroke or traumatic brain injuries, right? So the speech centers are on the left side of the brain. So let's say that there's a stroke and the infarction happened on in the left side of the brain. What we see is that when you're singing... Right? The singing ability originates on the right side of the brain. So these people can work around the injury to the left side of the brain by singing their thoughts and then gradually dropping it into a melody to help improve the left side of the brain. That's pretty incredible. That that's a nice hack too. Utilizing one side of the brain to help the other side of the brain, just with music. Cancer. And you know, this is my field, and I've actually read about this when I was in my residency. But yeah, reducing side effects of cancer therapy, and we know we know that the majority, I actually haven't seen one chemotherapy or even immunotherapy that hasn't had at least a little bit of side effects. For the most part, it's not a little, it's moderate to severe side effects. So we know if music can help reduce those side effects, something that is that has no side effects in itself is cheap and is gentle That's a big intervention that every hospital should be making. Listening to music reduces anxiety associated with chemotherapy and radiation. It can also quell nausea and vomiting, which is huge for chemotherapy. I know many patients in my career personally who have become so nauseous from chemotherapy. It is one of the number one symptoms along with fatigue and hair loss. Um, So yeah, if you know anyone with cancer and you know nausea is a big issue. Uh, In my experience, it's a big issue. So again, music therapy coming in, you mean to tell me that it can reduce nausea and vomiting for patients receiving chemotherapy? That's huge. Everyone in a hospital who has cancer should have headphones on. How about pain? It aids in the intense short-term pain to those with chronic pain from arthritis. Because what happens is music, when it stimulates a certain part of the brain, decreases perception of pain, it reduces the amounts of pain medication that is needed, and it helps relieve depression in pain patients, which is which is actually huge. And I did a show about this back when I was in New York with Rob Kachko. He spoke about depression in pain patients, and it's overwhelming. Um, and it gives them a better sense of control over their pain. So piggybacking on that pain, in a study of the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2013, showed that the power of music and in the context of pain is really something else. So this was a randomized controlled trial in the ER and here's what they saw. The music group showed numerically smaller average values and lower range extremes in distress. So these are kids, lower amounts of distress, but even more significant was their overall pain scores, right, the intervention group had clinically, clinically significantly better pain scores versus the children who did not receive music, which is pretty incredible that a child can just listen to some music, and it can relieve their pain scores. How many kids are going to respond better when they have their headphones in the waiting room? So again, another intervention. If you if you're a young mom, a young dad out there, and uh, your kid needs to go to the ER, or even to the doctor, maybe maybe it might be it might behoove us to just put some headphones on our kids and put on some music. And I, if I recall, the kids were listening to um, just ambient sounds ambient music, you know, and uh, very calming for the kid and reduce their pain scores, which is pretty incredible. We see more neurological activation when folks are uh, subject to familiar music. When they hear something that they know, their brain is wiring and firing much faster. Now, personal preference doesn't play a role in the effect of music therapy, right? But also, there's an interesting part is that the different types of music activate different types of Different parts of the brain, which is pretty interesting in itself, right? So, not all music is created equal in the way that it stimulates our brain. Happy music without lyrics versus happy music with lyrics stimulate different areas of the brain, Um, such that happy music without lyrics evoke stronger emotion than happy music with lyrics. So, um, for me, if I'm listening to a ukulele and like Hawaiian sounds, that's saying that it's going to evoke stronger emotion than if I was listening to ukulele and Hawaiian sounds with a guy from Hawaii singing over it. There's another really good study that I want to talk about. Back in 2011, in the World Journal of Psychiatry, what we saw was an analysis of 25 controlled trials. And if you listen to the show, you'll always remember me saying these control trials are really a really high standard. That's what we want. We want a control and an intervention so we can properly assess the results. So 25 control trials they looked over, and this was all on music therapy, and neurological disease. And I mentioned neurological diseases a little bit earlier, but now we're gonna go into how it affects them. So the authors concluded that music-based activities can represent a valid and without side effects intervention for reducing psychological and behavioral disturbances related to neurological disorders and also for promoting functional recovery. What they found was that the most significant benefit was in mood, right? So if you have a neurological disorder, um, mood is a major part of it. And if if, if you uh, know anyone with Alzheimer's disease, you know that mood dysfunction is a major part of it, right? Dementia, mood's a f- uh, major part of it because these neurological changes, right? Our brain, our brain is those neurons. So those neurolog- neurological changes, whether they're in the central nervous system or the peripheral, are still going to have overall uh, an overall effect to our mood because our mood is really coming from there and our gut. Most specifically, depression and anxiety, right? That, that Music was helping depression and anxiety, but also it was seen in the improvement of emotional expression. And that's that's really good for us men out there who, who have a lot of issues expressing ourselves emotionally, as we know. And a lot of the women listening there can attest to that. But music was helping emotional expression, communication and interpersonal skills, self esteem and quality of life. Just by listening to music as therapy, isn't empowering to know that music has scientifically proven benefits, not only to physical, but now we know mental and emotional. So why does music work? Mentioned a little bit earlier, right? It all has to do with activation, activation in the brain. Music activates a part of the brain. It activates many, but really intensely activates limbic and paralimbic parts of the brain. Patients with mood disorders like depression, we find that these areas are functionally abnormal. So with this activation, it's helping promote balance in those areas. That's pretty incredible. Just putting on headphones again. With that said, we still don't fully know how music in our brain works and why it's healing, but we know that it does, it helps and it activates the brain and it can help various conditions. You're probably wondering, uh, what do I, how do I listen to music? What's my music therapy? Well. There's different types of music therapy, and I just want to bring these to light so you have a better idea, right? Because some conditions work better or traditionally respond better to different therapies. So let's say you or someone you love is suffering. Now you know where to go as a resource or guide. So the Bonnie method of guided imagery and music, they use selected sequences of classical music. Uh, to support the generation of and movement of inner experiences. So basically, the therapist plays music and then asks the client to describe images that come to mind throughout the song. Again, this is providing uh, an inner experience to the music. And this is all types of issues that, um, that folks deal with. They were found to be benefiting from this type of imagery. The dow Crows method. This is a method used to teach uh, music to students that can be used as a form of therapy, right? It It focuses on rhythm, structure, movement, expression. This is really good for patients with motor difficulties. Right. Um, let's say you have a neurological disease uh, that of different types of genetic disease. This is this will be very helpful at activating that motor process and through movement expression. The Codale, uh music therapy it uses base of rhythm, notation, sequence, and movement to aid in learning and healing of a patient. So what was this? What this was found for to have a positive impact in perceptual function. Concept formation, motor skills, and learning performance in a therapeutic setting. So, if any of those fall into you or someone you love, know that that might be a good way to go. How about the neurological music therapy model? This mu- model of music therapy is based on neuroscience and specifically for the perception and production of music and its influence on the brain and behavior. So, maybe this one falls better into cognitive issues, right? Um, again, maybe if you have a child with ADHD or any behavioral issues this might be a good one. The Nordoff-Robbins one is children uh, who are affected by autism and mental disorders, just like the one before. This one may be beneficial for emotional disturbances, developmental delays, and learning difficulties. Um, This one, the Nordoff-Robbins, is widely recognized. And at the core, basically, uh, the approach assumes that everyone can find meaning and benefit from music and focuses on the creation Of music with the help of a therapist. And lastly, the offshore work is an approach to musical therapy where children with developmental delays, disabilities, uh, and following the realization that medicine alone was not sufficient. This is why they created it. They use music to improve the learning ability of children. So again, it seems that a lot of these uh, methods are really beneficial for children. But as I mentioned earlier, we have folks with Alzheimer's, so that's the other side of the spectrum, uh, and everything in between, right? If someone's set for surgery, we know that music can affect us positively, um, during surgery positively, after surgery positively. We know that it's helpful in depression and mood disorders and anxiety. We know that binaural beats, as I mentioned before, is helpful for anxiety. So the question is, do you find music healing? Has it helped you? I know that it's It's certainly, at least intuitively, until I read all the science about this a few years ago, I knew that it was doing something. But now we know scientifically that it helps in the brain and it can actually help reduce these conditions that can really be an anchor to our optimization, living our life. So, um, yeah, if it has helped you, just leave a review. Tell me. Tell me how it helps you. And tell me what type of music, right? For me, I love to actually just learn about new music anyway. So yeah, leave a leave a review on, on iTunes or wherever else you're listening so I can read it and I can actually check out the music too, I love music. I'll check out the artist, I promise you that. Anyway, okay, I hope that helped. That was a really nice passion piece because I love music. As I mentioned a million times already, I'm always playing it and I hope you love it too as much as I do, it brings a lot of joy to my life. Okay, these guests are gonna be amazing. I am not gonna say anything else than the intro. Uh, amazing guys. going to talk about diabetes. Let's just get right to this guest segment, because I'm so excited. It's going to help everyone out there, diabetes or not. All right, everyone. Today's special guests are two friends of mine, and I'm so excited to have them on because they just released a book called Mastering Diabetes, and it's a revolutionary book, and I'll tell you why. They push the status quo. That's why I love these type of guests on here. This is this book's all about uh, a revolutionary method to reverse uh, type two diabetes, as well as pre-diabetes, which is, believe it or not, can be um, reversed and implemented very, very early on to reverse insulin resistance permanently in That's type it. one, one point five, two, and pre-diabetes and gestational diabetes. So, without further ado, let's get Cyrus and Robbie on here. What's up, guys? Hey, thanks for having us here today. Yeah, super cool to be here. Good intro. It was a great intro. Yeah, Nailed I'm excited. It. Can I just before we even start talking, I want to talk about how I got this book in my hands. Okay, <laughs> I'm over here. It's like six o'clock at night, and I have my windows open, and I'm answering some emails, and I hear someone yelping outside of my fence, mm-hmm. and I see a little light on on a, on a like a, a biker's helmet. And, I, and he goes, it's Robbie. I go, I go oh, shoot. Hello. So I run out there, I open it. Robbie, he goes, here, I'm hand-delivering a book. He biked to my house and hand-delivered this book. Mm-hmm. That has to be the most unique delivery of anything I've ever had.
1: Yep. Uh, it's called dedication. That's called dedication. <laughs> so you
0: guys, and, and that's just a microcosm because you both are so invested in spreading this message of mastering diabetes, right? And it is, it, it is a method that not a lot of conventional... Yeah. A conversations are going around. So Mm-mm. that's why we need to hear about what you all are about, right? So uh, maybe some background, and then let's just jump right into what's in here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're right. So we, you know, Robbie and I both have type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. He was diagnosed in 2000, I was yeah. diagnosed in 2002. So we have a combined total of what, 36 plus years living with type 1 diabetes. And the reason that's important is because we, type 1 diabetes can be very difficult to manage. And your average person with type 1, Uh, you know, is just sort of told, inject insulin, eat whatever you want, maybe eat a low-carbohydrate diet, maybe not, and don't worry, you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out, Mm -hmm. right? And it can become really confusing because trying to manage your blood glucose uh, can become very challenging because there's so many variables that affect it. What you eat, how much you eat, what's the macronutrient distribution, what about when you exercise, what about when you're stressed, what about if you fast? So it can become very complex. So point being is that, you know, I went to school, so I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in the year 2002, and um, I tried the low carbohydrate thing because that's what my doctors told me to do. And the idea is very simple. Lower your carbohydrate intake, and that's supposed to lower your blood glucose, which in turn lowers your insulin use. Very simple philosophy. Mm -hmm. So I tried doing that, and maybe I just suck at low carbohydrate (laughs) diets, but it did not do that for me. My blood glucose was a roller coaster. It was all over the place. Mm And my insulin use kept on creeping up over the course of time. So it started like 25 units per day, and then 32, 35, 37, 42, 45. There were certain days where I was injecting 50 units of insulin per day, mm. which is an absurd amount for somebody of my height and weight. And so I knew there was a problem, but I didn't know what to do. So I ended up opening my mind to the idea that maybe there was a different way. Maybe there's like some alternative way, right? And along came a guy named Dr. Doug Graham. Dr. Doug Graham wrote a book. It's called The 80-10-10 Diet. He teaches people how to eat a fruitarian diet. But a lot of what you see on the table right here. Mm-hmm.
0: And we do have a lot of fruits on here. We
1: got a lot of them. And uh, I went under his wing because in 2002, he was literally the only person that was willing to talk to me about my diet with type 1 diabetes because type 1 diabetes is sufficiently nuanced and sort of scary enough to the medical community that a lot of people are sort of like, oh, like I, I, I can't touch that one. Mm-hmm. So Doug was like, let me take you under my wing. Under his supervision... He showed me how to ditch the low-carbohydrate philosophy, start eating a low-fat, plant-based whole food diet, and in so doing, my insulin requirements went from like mid-40s on a daily basis down to mid-20s, despite the fact that my carbohydrate intake went up by six-fold.
0: Yeah, I can imagine.
1: So here I am eating 600 grams of carbohydrate per day, which is more than your average person with diabetes would eat in a week or a month. Mm-hmm. I'm doing that every 24 hours and my insulin use came down. More carbohydrate, less insulin. And I was like, this is unbelievable. More energy, joints didn't hurt, muscles didn't hurt, could exercise more, blood glucose more controllable. So I was like, this, I want to learn this. So I went back to school, I got a PhD in nutritional biochemistry, so that I could really delve into the details of like what's happening in Mm -hmm. here, and is this applicable to other people? Is it applicable to you? Is it applicable to other people with type one? Is it applicable to people with type two? And in so researching, I found that there's literally a hundred years worth of scientific evidence that describes perfectly exactly what happened inside of me. And this information, we've known this for a long time, It's that information is just being suppressed. And what the general public does is the exact opposite. So when I met Robbie somewhere along the way, we decided, we're like, wait a minute, why don't we take this information to the public and like make it relatable, make it translatable and help people living with all forms of diabetes, mm. how they can transform their diet and become more plant-focused. And by doing
2: so, they're going to get tremendous benefits.
0: Mm. And that, that's
2: how Mastering Diabetes was born.
0: That's pretty incredible. Riley, was that <laughs> it, the same idea with you? It, or it, very
2: similar story. In being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, you are told, just eat a standard American diet. Just live like your friends. We mm-hmm. want you to be normal. So I was living in Minnesota at the time. I went to the Mayo Clinic, got the best medical care, have an endocrinologist, a nutritionist, a therapist, the whole thing. Nobody ever said anything about what's in this book. Mm-hmm. Nobody said anything about reversing insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. Nobody said anything about reducing your long-term chronic disease risk. So I follow that, okay? I tried many different diets over the years. I tried the Western A. Price Foundation diet, eating lots of grass-fed beef, eating lots of, you know, you know getting rid of processed food. There were some good things there. But I also had raw milk, which you can't sell to humans. So I went to a farmer's market to go and buy milk that's sold for cats to consume to follow that program. So that was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't see any change in my diabetes health at that point. So at this point, I have cystic acne. I have plantar fasciitis on my feet. It's a very painful condition, very mm-hmm. frustrating as a competitive tennis player. I have chronic allergies. I'm taking Nasonex, and d still sick all the time. Warts on my feet. I'm not doing that well. So I'm continuing to learn... How can I take better care of myself? How can I improve my overall health? And I eventually came across a plant-based ketogenic diet from Gabriel Cousins, did the phase one program, eating lots of oil, lots of nuts and seeds, a little bit of green, lots of greens, a little bit of celery, stuff like that. And at this point, I am eating about 70 grams of total carbohydrate. You look at it from net carbohydrate, it's like 30 when you get rid of the fiber, okay? Mm-hmm. So then I ended up stumbling across Doug Graham, just like Cyrus. This guy tells me to eat a bunch of fruits and vegetables. I increase my carbohydrate intake to well over 700. If you want to look at that as net carbs, it's going to be around 3, 600, somewhere around 600, mm-hmm. all right? I now eat more than 20 times the carbohydrate that I used to eat before, and I use less insulin than people eating 30 grams of carbohydrate per day.
0: That's pretty incredible.
2: So but- this experience of changing my insulin sensitivity was like, wait a minute, hold on, what's going on? So at this point, I'm a freshman at the University of Florida. I have access to all the greatest peer-reviewed journals. And I'm like, wait a minute, hold on, let me go look into this. And just like Cyrus said, this stuff's been in the journals for 100 years. And I have this realization, wait a minute, I'm getting insulin to work more efficiently in my body. That's what's happening. I'm experiencing that as a type 1. We're the most amazing test subjects for insulin sensitivity. And we have over 115 million people living with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. And the sole problem... Is that insulin doesn't work efficiently? They're insulin resistant. Now, oh, wait a minute. I literally am experiencing the solution for le- people living with pre diabetes and type 2 diabetes. What's going on here? We got to get this message out there. And then you go look in the research, people are reversing type 2 diabetes on a low fat, plant based, whole food diet for decades. And then there's case study after case study after case study. And then we get a coaching program. We have over 3,000 people been through our coaching program reversing type 2 diabetes and pre diabetes left, right, and center. It's like, let's go. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you guys, and that's why you guys are so passionate, and excited. I mean, if I had something to share with the world that really works, yeah. which I kind of do sometimes, but <laughs> but like you guys putting it and in, synthesizing it into a book, you, there's a lot of excitement in your faces, and I see that, and I hear it in your voices. It's pretty incredible. What what do you think? And and what do you think is the reason why? this is so, all right, so look, we're told, even in medical school, exactly how to work with high insulin type diabetes, type one, type two. Um, Why isn't it in the conventional forefront? Why is it, you said something about suppression. Do you truly believe it's being suppressed? Oh,
1: yeah. No question about it. No question about it. So I think there's a number of uh, forces at play here. Number one, doctors, you go to medical school, don't learn nutrition in any rigorous evidence-based format. Uh, do you have any idea of how many hours 23.9 (laughs) 23.9 not me that's
0: that's conventional (laughs) that's the average for me we had two years
1: of nutrition education of nutrition right because you're naturopathic exactly okay so your average MD uh, they go to medical school they spend 10,000 plus hours doing medical school training plus clinical rotations and residency and they go through that process and like 23.9 of those hours are spent studying nutrition what can you learn in 23.9 hours you can learn glycolysis You can learn fatty acid oxidation pathway, but that doesn't tell you anything about what to eat, Mm -hmm. right? And so as a result of that, uh, you know, doctors are sort of, they remain in the dark, and uh, doctors are phenomenal people. They're super altruistic. They want to help people, but they get out into the real world, and all of a sudden, patients are presenting with insulin resistance, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, obesity, chronic kidney disease, you name it. And their solution, what they've been trained to do, is say, huh, I don't really know that much about diet, but I do have this laundry list of medication you can take because the first line of defense is metformin. The second line of defense is fill in the blank. And so they sort of have this prescriptive mindset. And so as a result of that, your average person you know, comes to your doctor and then ends up leaving with a pharmaceutical medication, right? Is that the doctor's fault? Absolutely not. It's the medical system's fault, right? And whoever designed the medical system 50, 60, 70 years ago, um, there may have been some kind of pharmaceutical collaboration at that time. I have no idea, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, then in addition to that, you have you know, insulin manufacturers, as an example, who are permanently keeping the prices extremely high. And as a result of that, you know, there's people all around the planet that just literally cannot afford insulin. And they're having to sell their houses and sell their cars and get rid of their pets in order to just have enough medication on board so that they you know, can
2: continue to live a healthy, normal life. Mm-hmm. right? If that's not collusion, I don't know what is. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I know, I believe it. Here's
2: another reason this is so confusing. There's a lot of nuances in the world of diabetes, all right? So people who are living with diabetes, they try and eat some carbohydrate-rich foods, they test on their blood glucose meter, and they see a high number. They see it go to 200, 300. They're like, how can you tell me that it wasn't that banana that just caused my high blood glucose reading? Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? I I, I eat by my meter. I eat by my meter. That's the common phrase, all right? And what they don't understand is the underlying cause of that high blood glucose reading is insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. The high blood glucose was just a symptom. The disease is insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. That's when you read that cover of the the, the title on the cover Mm -hmm. here. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about reversing insulin resistance in all forms of diabetes.
0: The root cause. The root cause. Right, because the blood sugar is always, you know, you hear hear, uh, as we grow up and throughout life, oh, you know, that's the disease, the blood sugar. But now we know. Yeah, And I think this, this actually is, this, this can reach more than just people with diabetes diagnosed. How many pre-diabetics there are there? I remember when I was just starting out, there was this young girl, she was like 30 years old and she came in and she had pre-diabetes and she was skinny and you would never expect it, but she ate like crap. Yeah. Like mm. crap. And I go, you're pre-diabetic, like, you're just, like, one one candy bar away from being diabetic. <laughs> wow. And mm-hmm. for her to understand, and I did put her on a vegetable-vegetable-rich diet, mm. um, just changed her diet completely, and it reversed. Perfect. It, so, for me, in my head, pre-diabetes, even type 2 diabetes, is very much so reversible.
2: It's no question.
0: Yeah, but, you. so, I, I, again, I'm trying to understand, you, you must be met with resistance when people don't want to eat an orange or, like, What's this guy here? That's What's a this, white sapote right there. A white there. sapote uh, early kind in the custard morning. flavor. So how is this benefiting their insulin resistance mm-hmm. rather, and, and the low fat in, uh, benefiting their insulin resistance? What okay. are we seeing?
1: All right, so uh, let's take a step backwards, actually, yeah. trying to understand, like, what the heck is insulin resistance? Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have heard about it, and you kind of, like, see it printed in the newspaper and you see it on television, but the actual understanding of what insulin resistance is can get a little foggy. So, the simplest way to think about insulin resistance is it is a condition that is caused by the consumption of excess dietary fat. So, when you eat a diet that's high in fat, especially if that contains a significant amount of saturated fat, then you end up developing this condition called insulin resistance. And the way that it happens is that every time you eat a fat-rich meal, whether it's breakfast, lunch, dinner, you name it. um, And this is what people who are eating a low-carbohydrate diet do, right? They're trying to eat a very small number of carbohydrates, and as a result of that, they end up eating foods that are high in fat and protein. So every time they eat chicken, fish, uh, red meat, white meat, vegetable oil, avocados, nuts, seeds, coconuts, you name it, they're eating foods that are fat-rich. So that fat travels down your esophagus, it gets into your stomach, it then gets into your small intestine. Inside of your small intestine, you have enzymes that basically rip the triglyceride molecule apart, get access to those fatty acids, those fatty acids are then transported across the walls of your small intestine, into your lymph system, and then eventually into your blood. Once those fatty acids are in your blood, they circulate to tissues wherever those, and and, and they can get uptaken by whatever tissue requires it. Mm -hmm. So if those fatty acids ended up inside of your adipose tissue, and only your adipose tissue, diabetes may not exist as a condition. Because your adipose tissue is actually a safe place for them to be. So think of it as like a catcher's mitt. As soon as the fatty acids roll around, then like boom, they can get inside the adipose tissue. The adipose tissue is mechanically and enzymatically designed, as you know this, to be able to uptake fatty acids, store them for long periods of time, and then release them when the time is right. Mm -hmm. The problem is that some of those fatty acids get inside of your adipose tissue, no problem. But then some of those fatty acids end up spilling over into your liver and spilling over into your muscle. And that's okay as long as the total fatty acid amount is small. Now, if you're eating a fat-rich breakfast or I should say a carbohydrate-poor breakfast and then you do the same thing for lunch, then you do the same thing for dinner, then you repeat that tomorrow, and the next day, and the next week, and the next month, over the course of time you end up consuming a significant quantity of fat in your diet. And as a result of that, the amount of fatty acids that go inside of your liver and muscle starts to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. You get to a certain point where the physiologically normal amount of fatty acids that those tissues are designed to store is exceeded, Mm -hmm. and then at that point, these tissues now go into a state of self-preservation because they're saying, hmm, there's so much fatty acid here inside of me, I don't want this stuff anymore, okay? I'm being forced to uptake and store more than I want. So what they do is they they institute insulin resistance. The reason for that is because these tissues can't really block fatty acids from coming in. There's not a very good mechanism by which they can do that, but what they can do is they can block insulin from communicating with the tissue. And the reason they would want to do that is because if they block insulin, then they can block glucose from coming into the tissue. So it's like, I can't really handle this fatty acid problem, but I can at least block another type of energy from coming in. Mm-hmm. So they say, all right, cool. So they take these insulin receptors and they start to invaginate them or like pull them in. So there's less insulin receptors on the outside of the cell. And then in addition to that, the, the insulin receptors that are still pointing onto like the outside of the cell they get this thing called a post-translational modification on the inside that just renders them less effective. Mm -hmm. So, you're in a state now where these tissues have specifically initiated insulin resistance to block glucose from coming in. So then, tomorrow you eat a banana. You're like, cool, Robbie gifted me this banana, I'm going to go eat it. So you eat the banana. The banana contains carbohydrate energy. The carbohydrate gets broken down into glucose. The glucose is in circulation in your blood. The glucose can't get into the tissue without insulin being the escort. So insulin, knock, knock, i got this glucose, do you want to take mm-hmm. it up? And the tissue responds by saying, sorry, remember that whole insulin resistance thing that I created? I'm not listening to you right now, I'm mm-hmm. full. Mm-hmm. I got to get rid of this fatty acid stuff first, and then once I do, I can take the glucose out. Mm-hmm. So that's what Robbie exactly explained. You eat a banana, insulin resistance prevents the glucose from getting inside of the tissue. Mm-hmm. Two hours later, you check your blood glucose and you're like, 264? What are you talking about? I guess, oh, that's the problem, bananas are bad for me. Quinoa is bad for me. Mangoes are bad for me. I, I guess I shouldn't eat carbohydrate-rich anything because when I do, my glucose goes high. And then it further fuels this idea that carbohydrates are bad. They're going to make you more diabetic. They're going to make you fat. So don't eat carbohydrate-rich food.
0: Mm, that makes more sense now. Yeah. So so basically, the, the the tissue is like the club the insulin receptor is the <laughs> bouncer it. and glucose is the guy trying to get in. And insulin is the the pretty girl with the guy. Insulin is <laughs> the pretty girl. That's yeah. exactly right. And, you and, nailed it. And the bouncer's like, hey... Club's full, just wait a little bit mm-hmm. till we empty out the club that's or exactly empty right. out those fatty acids. Yeah. That's my
1: favorite uh, analogy of all time.
0: Yeah, well, that I just that's how I see things. But yeah, yeah, that's a great explanation for us to understand. So then those people who are eating fruits all of a sudden and their blood sugar is going up, mm-hmm. the problem is they have an excess of fatty acids in their tissue, you're saying.
1: Exactly. So uh, what we like to say is we say, it's not the banana's fault. It's everything that you ate before the banana that set the stage for insulin resistance that made it so that the banana is no longer metabolizable. In order to improve your glucose tolerance and your carbohydrate tolerance, you got to solve another problem. Solve that problem first, which is reducing your sort of fatty acid accumulation inside of your liver and muscles. Then the fruit and the carbohydrate rich food becomes metabolizable and your carbohydrate tolerance, or your glucose tolerance goes way up.
0: Which is what happened with both of you, because you both can really tolerate way more carbs than, we'll say, the standard person who's not eating that way.
2: Absolutely. And it's not just us. It's mm-hmm. all the type ones, all the type 1.5s, all the insulin-dependent type 2s mm-hmm. that apply this method to their life.
0: Wow. And that's, that's The incredible. whole book is
2: about how to get those people out of the club.
0: Mm. Okay? Yeah, how to get the fatty acids <laughs> out. That's right. So, so and, and the beautiful thing is, again, it's there's so many folks who are pre-diabetic already are heading towards there. So this message is, it's a bigger net than just diagnosed diabetes. No question. You know, like a a lot of us can really benefit and understand sort of that mechanism that Cyrus, you were talking about, how important it is to to know like what a balanced diet does. So you're saying more people, most people in American diet eat way too much fat.
1: No (laughs) question about it. Because if you look at the actual macronutrient breakdown of the standard American diet, it's like 40-40-20, meaning 40% carbohydrate, 40% fat, and 20% protein on average. And there's, there's a number of problems with that. First of all, when you have an equal amount of carbohydrate and fat in your diet, okay, mammalian systems are not designed to handle high amounts of, uh, sorry medium to high amounts of carbohydrate and medium to high amounts of fat at the same time. Okay, they require different sets of enzymes, different biological mechanisms, different hormones, and so as a result of that, uh, having one of them low and one of them high, higher always results in better blood glucose control. No, no, no questions asked. That's why when people eat a ketogenic diet, as an example, what they do is they suppress their carbohydrate intake and eat more fat. So they're doing that. They're, they're sort of creating an imbalance that leads to better blood glucose control. We're suggesting the opposite, which is reduce your fat intake and increase your carbohydrate intake because mm-hmm. that's also what enables you to reduce your chronic disease risk into the future.
0: So someone who is eating a ketogenic diet and they're eating a lot of fat and low carbohydrate, essentially their tissues are being saturated with fatty acids Correct. still. And it's in, let's say they get off of the keto and then they start eating again, carbs normally, they mm-hmm. might experience some insulin resistance, you're saying?
1: That's exactly right. So, so they're <laughs> technically, th- this is like the number one most confusing subject in all of like diabetes physiology, I would say which is that you have millions of people that are flocking towards the ketogenic diet. And they're going to listen to this podcast and they're going to look at us and they're going to be like, those guys don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. They don't know what they're talking about because look at me. I can eat a lot of fat rich foods. I can eat avocados and coconuts and meat and chicken and fish all day long. And my blood glucose is a flat line, literally pegged between 80 and 90 all day long. So that story that Cyrus just told about my blood glucose going super high is not a true statement. And the reason that that is actually a true statement is because what people in the ketogenic world do is they they eat a very high fat diet, usually 70 to 80% of total calories, but they don't eat these foods at all. Mm -hmm. They're not eating any fruit. I mean, they're eating some berries, but they're not eating quinoa, they're not eating potatoes, they're not eating squash, corn, whole grains, you name it. So they're playing the carbohydrate avoidance game And when you play the carbohydrate avoidance game, your blood glucose is very controllable. But just like you said, they're living with an underlying condition of insulin resistance Mm -hmm. because those tissues are now saturated with saturated fatty acids. They just never test out whether their liver or muscle is capable of handling carbohydrate Mm -hmm. because they don't eat the carbohydrate rich food.
0: Yeah. It'd be interesting to to track that as they start incorporating more carbohydrates for the first like two months or trying to bring it back up because of that saturation going on, which is an incredible. I mean, we didn't learn that in medical school, I'll tell you that much. No, of course not. Of course <laughs> yeah, not. So, so, but but, Robbie, in your experience, do you see people, have you ever seen someone who, or maybe some of your clients who work keto and then they're sort of like switching into this? What do you, what do you- So
2: we have a lot of clients that come in that way. And the key thing that we teach them is about the slow transition. So we have created a insulin resistance quiz that people can take, it's in the book, and they can figure out what is their baseline level of insulin resistance. And that is gonna depend on what your dietary habits are, what your activity habits are, and that's gonna influence what food you should eat as you transition. Mm -hmm. So people who are very, very insulin resistant, we're gonna make sure the vegetable consumption is really, really high. We're gonna make sure that the carbohydrate that you're eating is going to be a little bit softer on that spike in your blood glucose, Mm -hmm. all right? So that is the key, because there's no question. They're coming in very insulin resistant. If they just sat down and ate like a bunch of bananas for breakfast and some dates or something, they can't handle that. They are Mm -hmm. not glucose tolerant. They're going to see a crazy spike. It'll come back down eventually, but that's frustrating. And we want people, as they transition, to actually have a smooth, graceful, fun experience and enjoy everything they're eating. Mm -hmm. So that's what it really comes down to, is when they have the knowledge, to understand what's going on, you can sort of like take a step back, like, wait a minute, if my blood glucose is a little bit high, I know why. I'm not blaming the fruit as the problem, I'm not blaming carbohydrates. I understand I've just eaten myself into a state of insulin resistance, and I'm gonna eat my way out of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how long then do you, do you estimate it takes to desaturate yourself of those fatty acids it's in the a, tissue? It's a great question. And just like Rob was saying, it depends on a number of factors. Depends
1: on how long you've been living with diabetes for. How long have you been eating a insulin-resistant-inducing diet? Um, how active are you? There's a big difference. The people that are the most active can get over insulin resistance the quickest. How overweight are you? Are you 5 pounds overweight or are you 75 pounds overweight? That matters. Um, and... Uh, And another thing is also how many, like if you're eating an excess quantity of total calories to begin with, then that's going to actually cause a serious uh, metabolic problem. So worst case scenario, somebody comes to us, they've been eating a ketogenic diet, they take the insulin resistance quiz, they score very high. They do this, you know, two-step approach like Robbie's saying, lower glycemic sort of, you know, non-starchy vegetables and legumes to begin with. And then they earn their way to eating more fruits and more potatoes over the course of time. I give those people, empirically, what we've seen in our coaching program, three weeks, four weeks before they are able to handle significant amounts of carbohydrate-rich food uh, without their blood glucose going crazy at all.
0: That's a pretty fast turnover. Oh, it's ridiculously I thought you were going to say a lot longer than that. That's pretty incredible that yeah. the body is set to go back yes. to it's like... and, and and we love glucose, like that's that's what our bodies are built to use that as our energy source. So it's it makes sense that it the turnover is so fast. Yeah, right? exactly. Because we just kind of evolved to no be question. eating this stuff anyway. So so how so these folks are, are they are they eating unlimited amount of fruits? Is there a cap to what you're saying?
2: Well, I love this. Okay, so we have designed a simple traffic light system to understand what foods to eat in large quantities, what foods to minimize, and what foods to avoid. So the green light category has fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, intact whole grains, non-starchy vegetables, greens, herbs and spices, and mushrooms. Let's focus on the first four foods there, okay? The first four groups. Fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, intact whole grains. Yes, as you become more and more insulin sensitive, you get to eat these foods in large quantities. There is no reason to count how many servings you're having. There's no reason to limit the portion size on your plate you eat those foods when you're hungry until you're satisfied. And if you want a snack, go ahead and eat some more. Mm. The key here is that if you want to be successful in the long term, you have to eat enough calories. And when people eat a low fat, plant based whole food diet, they start eating a bunch of salads, a bunch mm. of carrots. And you're yeah. like, wait a minute, I'm hungry an hour later. Yeah. They eat what they used to eat and they feel good again because mm. they finally got calories, mm-hmm. they got some energy. So that's why we're emphasizing those calorie rich carbohydrate-rich, nutrient-dense, water-rich foods at the top of the green light category. Of course, non-starchy vegetables, leafy greens, herbs and spices, mushrooms, everybody agrees you should eat those. And those are important at pretty much every meal, yeah. especially in the beginning when you're more insulin resistant. You wanna combine the fruits, the starchy vegetables with greens and you know non-starchy vegetables, mm-hmm. herbs. That would be like bell peppers, zucchinis, uh, stuff like that. So that's the green light category. The yellow light category, these are foods to eat in be cognizant of how much you're consuming. So they're either higher in their fat content or they're a little bit more processed. So yellow light foods include nuts and seeds, avocado, coconut meat, olives, soy products. Those are all whole plant foods that we recommend. They're great. Include them in your diet. Mm-hmm. But just be aware that if you eat too many, you're going to have too much fat stored mm-hmm. in your cells. Mm-hmm. You're going to lead... It's going to cause some insulin resistance here. Mm-hmm. So... Just be careful with how much. Now, the other yellow light foods are things like brown rice pasta. Um, you know, there's bean pastas these days. There's lentil pastas. They're little great. Pro- little processed. Just a little more processed. Yeah. You know, just brown rice is going to be better. We're make, drawing clear lines here. Make mm-hmm. it very clear. Just follow this step by step. You're going to get the great results. They also have in there bread. So Ezekiel bread. Great, clean product. It's just a little bit more calorie dense, a little more processed. Eat whatever that was originally made out of in its whole intact form, and you'll be in better shape. The red light category, these are foods to minimize or completely avoid. Mm. That's going to be animal products. Red meat, white meat, we have eggs in there, dairy, all kinds of oils are going to be included and processed vegan foods. Mm. Those foods are high in fat, lots of additives. It's not going to help you reverse insulin resistance. So the more green light foods you eat, the better. It's not about being perfect. It's about eating more and more of the green light foods in alignment with whatever goal you're trying to achieve. Mm. And through our coaching program, we can help people kind of guide them through the process. Hey, okay, wait a minute, your fasting blood glucose is a little bit high. You want to lower it? Okay, here's how we can do that. You know, you're not losing weight as quickly as you want to. Here's a few tweaks we can make. And just getting more and more green light foods in your diet, you
0: can achieve those goals. That's amazing. And I'm sure you guys have reversed a lot with a lot of clients. And again, I hear how proud you you guys Mm -hmm. both are in your voice. You said 800 citations are in this book? More than 800 citations. More than 800 citations. Exactly. So it's not just two guys off the street writing (laughs) something, right? There's obviously I knew that, but Mm -hmm. there's so much, there's so much scientific credibility in here for the general public, but also practitioners like me and my colleagues, we can go, wait a minute. All right. There's a citation here. Let me read that study. Let me read this study. Let me read this study. And I know Mm -hmm. that was important to both of you, right?
1: No question. No question. Actually, it, it goes beyond that. Like we wanted to make sure that there was a significant amount of science. Like I remember when I first read How Not to Die by Mm. Dr. Greger. uh, I mean, the last like, like 130 pages of that book are nothing but citations. And I was like, oh my God, he's setting the bar so high for the total amount of research that you can incorporate into a book. And so we wanted to sort of follow suit and say, you know what, we don't want this book to just have like 50 or 100 citations in it. There's, we as a scientific community have so much information at our fingertips. Let's dive into that and really learn as much as we possibly can. And in addition to that, we also have some, some chapters in here that are specific to like a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet, in which we are trying to do our best to not point a finger and go into this with a bias saying, I don't like a ketogenic diet, therefore I'm gonna cherry pick the evidence to find everything that's bad about a ketogenic diet and then find everything that's good about a low fat plant-based whole food diet. We tried to be as neutral as possible, and we actually picked up a lot of information about the benefits of eating a ketogenic diet, because there are a lot of benefits. And so we put all that in there, but then we also said, okay, look, you know, there's some benefits, but then there's also some caveats. Let's talk about those as well. Point being is we were just trying to be as objective as possible, rather than coming into this with like a preconceived bias and then only arguing from that perspective. Yeah,
0: that's really important for people who, one, have never heard of this, critics, people who want to learn that's more, right. for for people to be like, okay, well, this is a little radical for me, but mm-hmm. let me go into it. Oh, you know, then cher- you mentioned cherry picking, like, it's kind of easy. So I can write a book tomorrow about red wine being wonderful, you know, and sure. and find like you know twenty studies, and then I could find a thousand other studies that say alcohol causes this type of cancer. Mm-hmm. So right, but, but so I I love the objectivity in here of the book. Um, so. I, I know you've done a lot of media with this book. I, I mean, I saw you guys on the Doctors. You've been everywhere. <laughs> so, um, what's the plan for this? Are you are you are you doing anything? Any 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 other events? What what what's going on now?
2: The plan for this book is to get it in the hands of as many people as possible. On a bike,
0: r- <laughs> on bike, on bike, <laughs> exactly, We're exactly. Across America.
2: That that really need this information, and we are asking people to share their success. We want this to be sort of a beginning of a revolution Mm -hmm. the results will speak for themselves when people just follow the step-by-step plan that's outlined in here there's like 30 recipes two 21-day meal plans follow the plan you will get the most extraordinary results it works and you're going to share that people are going to see it in you and it's going to snowball like Mm -hmm. this we want this to succeed by word of mouth that's the plan
0: yeah, and, and and the most magical things do, right? Like when, 100%. Think, when things start shifting, it's always like, hey, man, you got to try this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it, and it, you it. believe that that can unfold that way.
1: Yeah, because we've already seen it, right? People that come into our coaching program, they they come in skeptical a lot of the time. They're sort of like, well, I, nothing else has worked. I guess I'll give this thing a try, you know? And then I'll find the next thing that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people come in with that mindset, and then they start to apply the principles. And I'm I'm not even joking. Within twenty four to forty eight hours. They start looking at their blood glucose meter and they're like,
0: mm, whoa. My yeah, glucose
1: went down? Mm. I just ate a whole giant bowl of carbohydrates.
2: And the more fruit they down. eat, the better. Yeah. That's the fun part about this. Yeah. Like, we're, you know, this book and what we're doing is so fruit heavy that it's really exciting for people to see those results. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. they come in skeptical, they start to see the results.
1: The results get better and better and better over the course of time. And then, before you know it, three weeks down the road, they have the most stable blood glucose they've had in years. And then their weight starts to fall and before they know it. You know, three months go by, six months go by, and they're like, huh, I've lost 21 pounds. My A1C dropped by 2.5%. My fasting insulin fell by 60%. Uh, and my blood pressure is down, my total cholesterol is down, my LDL cholesterol's down, and the list goes on. Wow. Right? And then at that point, they just become an evangelist. They say, oh, my God, like, why doesn't they... A lot of people get angry, right? They get angry. They point a finger at their doctor and they say, how dare you not tell me this information before? That that's that's uh, irresponsible of you, right? So actually, my question to you would be: When you were going through medical school, what did you learn about diabetes?
0: The traditional stuff. Yeah. That, so that like literally carbohydrate-rich foods, you got to lower them, make sure that because that's what's really affecting insulin saturating. Not nothing about the nothing about the saturation of fatty acids, and this isn't the first time I'm hearing from you. I started learning a little bit more when i got into the vegan community sure sure a few years ago so i heard a little bit from and i know the four words by neil barnard so he did a little piece by saying i was like wait what did he just say about diabetes (laughs) hold on Mm -hmm. so then i started diving in a little bit about kind of that that theory but um yeah i mean i learned what every other medical student learns except not in 23.9 hours (laughs) (laughs) we learn it over over two years but regardless it's still the same paradigm because that is what's like accepted in the medical literature right now and not suppressed, as you said. Yeah.
1: yeah, And it's even, I mean, it still continues today because, you know, there's these position papers that are put out by the American Diabetes Association. And, you know, even these position papers are still advocating on behalf of a low carbohydrate diet, because when you look into the research on a low carbohydrate diet, the research looks very good. The research is, is always demonstrating that if you compare, as an example, a low carbohydrate diet versus a low fat diet, I mean, there's, there's more than 25 of these studies. And you look at them in the low-carbohydrate diet wins 100% of the time. The problem is that the low-fat diet that they're studying is not a low-fat diet. It's not truly a low-fat diet. We advocate eating between 10 and 15% of total calories from fat. The, the low-fat diet that they're using in these studies is between 25 and 37% fat. And they think of that as being a low-fat diet. So they're saying, when you compare a, a true low-carbohydrate diet versus this this like fake low fat moderate diet, fat. moderate fat, moderate, fat, then the low carbohydrate diet looks better. And the answer is, well, of course it does. But see these methodological flaws, they persist over and over and over and over again, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not putting a finger at any of the researchers saying <clears throat> that you're bad research. I'm just saying that like, it, you got to take it one step further. And so as a result of that, you have the American Diabetes Association and beyond that take a look at this and they're like, oh, it looks like low fat is clearly the better approach. And then they put this out, medical practitioners continue to learn that information. And then it goes all the way down to patients where they say,
2: I read the data <clears> and <throat> the data
0: shows that low carbohydrate is better. Low carb, low yeah. carb. Sure. Yeah.
2: But like I said, Dr. G, the testimonials speak for themselves. I mean, honestly, you said it, like I see the, how proud you guys are. to yeah, like, yeah. are the first like podcast person that said that to us. I'm like, oh yeah, that's kind of, it's true. It's yeah. true. We are so proud. I mean, go listen to our podcast and listen to testimonial after testimonial. Go check out our website listen to see read, see the written testimonies with the, the charts of all the numbers. Go look at the Amazon reviews that are pouring in already after yeah. just day four of this book being out. That's like cool. they're tearjerkers.
0: Yeah, like it's, it's unbelievable. When you apply the method, you will get the results. Yeah. So then I submit to all people listening and viewing, check out the book first and foremost, read through it. Um, talk to your doctor. They may not really really be all about it but then there's uh Robbie and Cyrus their programs everything that you can follow in order to maybe make a change because if your insulin is not in control your blood glucose is not in control we got some big problems and why live your life like you if you guys never came across the same um the same teacher you'd have been living your life you know just measurement by measurement exactly no question. By no question. No yeah. question.
2: We say it's the greatest blessing that's ever happened to us. We're healthier now than we were before because of this diagnosis, and we're confident we're going to live long, healthy lives because it led us to find this information.
0: Amazing. Okay, look, so before we go, drop one knowledge thing that you want to share, each of you. Uh, anything. Who wants to go first? That's a, like, a good one. Good question. You mean it doesn't have to be it, it's literally something you want to leave the listeners and viewers with mm-hmm. that is that is important for them to understand. Mm-hmm. Me is I'll start. Yeah, okay. you go. Um, fatty acids are the issue here, ladies <laughs> like and gentlemen. It, like it. Not the glucose. Um, and the book is full of all of that. That's that's my little take home right okay. now. How, yeah. about, how about you guys? So you know what I'm going to go down with?
2: Your hat. You like your that hat? hat says <laughs> now. I'm dead serious. Now is the time to go order this book and change your life. If you are a person listening to this, you're like, you know what? I, I could lose some of more, them more weight. Mm-hmm. My triglycerides are high. My blood pressure's high. My cholesterol's high. Maybe somebody sent this show to you and you're listening because you have
0: diabetes. You're using diabetes medications.
2: Mm-hmm. Now is the time to get started. It's going to work. Let's go.
0: I love that. I knew there was an impulse why I should wear this hat too.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was good, by the way. Uh, what I would say is
1: that, uh, for too long, humans have, uh, been living in this carbophobia mindset. That carbohydrates are bad for me, carbohydrates are bad for me. Now, carbohydrates come from two different classes. There's the refined carbohydrates. Not a single health advocate is saying eat more refined carbohydrates. Breads, cereals, pastas, cookies, crackers, breads, chips, sodas. Nobody is saying eat more of those. And we are in that camp. We don't eat more of those. We are advocating eat more real, whole plant-rich carbohydrate. When you do this, these carbohydrates are handled in a metabolically completely different way than refined carbohydrates. These are disease-reducing foods. Refined carbohydrates are disease-increasing foods. Mm-hmm. Eat these foods and watch as your whole life transforms in front of you.
0: I love that. Okay, all right. So what's a website for both of you so people can find you?
2: Okay, so go to masteringdiabetes.org. Mm-hmm. That's where you can find us. You can find the book everywhere books are sold. Amazon. Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, IndieBound, Powell's, Target, Walmart. It's everywhere, okay? You can also check out our audiobook. We read it ourselves. We add some extra stuff in the front of each chapter, some updates in there inside some of the chapters. So that was really fun. It's on Audible. It's on Google Play. It's wherever audiobooks are sold. Get the digital version if you like that. Kindle, Apple Books, Nook. The book is available everywhere.
0: I love that. And um, Instagrams, right? What are you guys Instagrams?
2: So, this is the at Mango Man. Okay. That's right, at Mango Man Nutrition. Yep. Um, I, uh, I don't <laughs> use that very actively these days. I'm not a social media fan, but this guy is. This yeah. guy is. Yeah, it. yeah. And then, uh, Mindful Diabetic Robbie. Uh, yeah. And check out at Mastering Diabetes as well.
0: Yeah, and I know Robbie's stories, man. He's always at the farmer's market and he has boxes of like <laughs> exotic fruit. And he's like, look, I just bought all this spinach for $5. I'm like, how did you do that? Yeah, yeah. it's pretty fun. Trip yeah, but, but he he knows the ins and outs like no one I've ever seen. But I have to thank you both. This was a, a mind blowing, definitely different approach to diabetes that and, and I know it's your truth. And I know you're helping so many people. So God bless you both. That's amazing. And I have the book. It's on my counter. It's opening up this weekend. So Thank you so much for both of you coming.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Dr. G, honestly, it's an honor to be on your show. And I mean, I'm serious. There's few people I hang out with. When I see you, I'm like, man, this guy inspires me to up my game. Like (laughs) your health game is strong, bro. Well, thank you. That's just OCD. It's okay. (laughs) All
0: right, guys. Thank you. What a segment that was. These guys are incredible. I told you. I told you, and to if, if you notice, you can hear the excitement in their voice. You can hear how much they wanna help people. And that's powerful. And that's the type of people I wanna bring on this show, people who are living their truth and helping others. That's the conscious community that we are bringing in here. I really hope that help you all. Certainly, if you have a loved one with diabetes, This might be something to explore 1000%. But even if you don't have diabetes, just understanding these mechanisms, very powerful. All right, next week, an amazing show. I already have it listed out. I can't wait. Really awesome product review coming for you. It's going to be one of the most amazing ones yet. And yeah, thank you for coming. I really appreciate you all. Have a great week. Much love. Dr. G loves you.